our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. We are thankful that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. It is you who have created music to be a joy and a blessing, to remind us of who you are and how you have acted in ages past, and how you will act to save your people. But Father, we understand also that the enemy of souls realizes what a power this is, and he seeks to pervert it for his own purposes. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would please send your Holy Spirit now to teach us, to lead us, and to guide us, so that we can render you an offering that would be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have primarily dealt with one uh, line of evidence, just one line of evidence when it comes to making uh, musical choices, and that is we've been concentrating on the theological and philosophical base uh, and the reason for that. Well, I'm going to switch gears right now and move to another line of reasoning. And that other line of reasoning can also be biblically grounded. And it could be grounded in the third angel's message. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, it says, Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, calls for obeying all of God's commandments. Now, that's just not the commandments that regulate the moral law. But, but those commandments, as we began to study as a denomination in the, uh, in the 1860s, we began to understand that the commandments not only applied to the moral law, but also to all natural and physical law. Did you know that we are all under natural and physical law? So I guess the correct, um, the, the, the question to ask now is, how do certain forms of music impact us on a psychophysiological level. So since we are really primarily rhythmic beings, I mean, we breathe, our heart beats in a certain rhythm, um, our auditory nerves are connected. I have two audiologists in my congregation. Our, our, our auditory nerves are connected to almost every part of our body. And so, uh, how, then does how then do certain forms of music impact us on a psychophysiological level? Well, let's pick on rock music. It says, rock music involves a neuropsychological conditioning in connotation or felt meaning linking aggression and sexuality. Now, if you've been immersed in it for a long, long time, that's not really any news to you. Uh, that's just the way it is. And the music industry knows that. It's called sex and drugs and rock and roll. They understand that. When I was in Toronto, growing up in Toronto, Canada, there were two primary uh, music and, uh, well, not worship, but music centers, I would say. If you went to Maple Leaf Gardens, where they usually play hockey and then they, you, know, they, you have the rock concerts there. Now, whenever you come out of Maple Leaf Gardens and you've seen one of these rock groups perform, uh, you're ready to tear the place up when you walk out. Uh, you have anger, you have emotion, uh, you are spirited, you are banging on cars, you are out of control. But when we go to Roy Thompson Hall and we see a symphony, we walk out the same way we came in. I've never seen anybody walk out of Roy Thompson Hall saying, yeah, Beethoven, Beethoven, Brahms, Brahms. <laughs> Never happened. 
Never happened. I mean, in the same guys that were in the jazz performance group with me, we had to go see Handel's Messiah. All right? Now, that wasn't at Roy Thompson Hall. It was at another hall. But even we, even we when we walked out, we're like, yeah, all right. That's, that was a good, you know, it's a good concert. I mean, we were not affected that way. And anybody that's been in the industry knows that these things are very much linked together. That's from the book Pop Goes the Gospel. Same book. The rhythm for which drums provide or generate the basic beat produce measurable responses in the body's muscular system, brainwave patterns, and hormone levels. As a result, muscle coordination and control become synchronized with the basic beat. So what happens when the music plays? Muscle coordination and control become synchronized with the basic beat. And I will try to demonstrate that, but not for too long, because I know what will happen to some of you. So, what is it? Muscle control and coordination will become synchronized with the basic beat. So, if I keep that up for long enough, going to transform the way some of you walk. <laughs> okay? You're not going to be walking like this. Now, I can't do that. I've never been able to dance, and there's a good reason for that. Whenever I hear music, the neural connections don't go like a dancer does, because my both feet and both hands are engaged. And so, you know, I can't do that. <laughs> so, but I know some of you can do it, used to do it, hopefully not doing it anymore. But you can do it quite well. Uh, and if you've, ever, if you've ever watched children, even in a worship setting, when they play that kind of music, just watch the kids that don't know any better. I mean, they haven't processed all this stuff. Just watch what happens to them. They all of a sudden go nuts. And the parents are trying to do anything and everything to try to control them. And so, I mean, you know, our kids, I mean, my son, we've, you know, we don't listen to this, but whenever he hears it, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a direct physiological response. Muscle coordination and control become synchronized with the basic beat. Brainwave activity itself aligns with the rhythm so generated and various hormones, specifically opiates and sex hormones, are released as a result of electrophysiological synchronization with the rhythm, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It does not matter. It, it's no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, it will have that effect on you. There's no question about it. The only thing you can do is recognize it if you're in that presence, and for some reason, if you're shopping and they're playing that stuff, and you've got to counter it with something else. Otherwise, it takes over. Is there any musicological scientific evidence that shows us why the rhythm in most modern forms of beat music has a certain effect on the human organism? Okay, I'm going to quote from the professionals. Rock music in particular has been demonstrated to be both powerful and addictive. I can testify to the addictive part, too as well as capable of producing a subtle form of hypnosis in which the subject, though not completely under trance, is still in a highly suggestive state. You, you basically turn your brains off because this kind of music is meant to be experienced. 
It's not meant to be critically analyzed. There's nothing really to analyze most of the time. Except if you were listening to perhaps 1970s or 80s rock, you know, at least you had groups there that knew how to play. Now everything is techno. You know, push the button, there's the drummer, you know. There's the bass player, there's everything, you know. I mean, you don't really need, you don't really need to learn, learn how to play or know how to play, but at least they did at that, at that point in time. Um, when I was studying jazz performance at York University, at the time I thought this was cool because uh, the instructor of the class says, you know, a good performance is like when it's not really you playing, but something else is playing through you and you're just moving along with it. I was like, wow, man, when can I get to that level? <laughs> but it's, a form, it's like spiritualism. We should always be in control. Uh, we shouldn't have something controlling us. But that's the effect. Perhaps the most important defining quality of rock and roll is the beat. Rock and roll is different from other music primarily because of the beat. There is no question about that. It's got nothing to do with the melody and the harmony. Absolutely not. If that backbeat isn't there, it just doesn't cut it. I don't care if you can sing. I don't care if you can play. I don't care if you're a Paganini or you're a virtuoso. If it does not have that, it doesn't make the grade. Not even entertained. It is with our bodies that we first respond to the rhythm of music, the music within you, musical therapists. Now, there's a great field for music therapy, and people understand how that works, and it's a, it's a legitimate science. The sexuality of music is usually referred to in terms of its rhythm. It is the beat that commands a directly physical response. Now, some of you are probably going to be confused because you see the word beat. Well, is there something wrong with a beat? Well, um, how many of you have heard this song before? Is that, a, is that music? It's a chord. That's all it was. This is not a song. You can't have music without rhythm. We're talking about a specific form of rhythm, though. And we'll talk a little bit more about this term syncopation as we move on. Physi uh, the psychology of music. The perception of rhythm involves the whole organism. Again, this is grounded in Revelation 14, 12, where it says, Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And so we ought to look at natural law. How does this impact natural law? And since we are under law, then this is relevant. When pulsation and syncopation are the rhythmic foundations of the music at a dance hall, the movements of the dancers can invariably be seen to become very sensual. Now, okay, what is this word syncopation? Have you ever heard that word before? Syncopation, what is, it, what, what is syncopated? Well, let me break it down into two separate avenues. Um, in the uh, Baroque classical uh, period, you have some forms of Bach, that are syncopated. Syncopation means that you are stressing what is called the weaker beats in most music is in 4-4 time. You are stressing the weaker beats in 4-4 time. The strongest beat is beat 1 and then beat 3. The weakest beats are beats 2 and 4. So when you stress anything that's other than beats 1 and 3, 
and, and even Bach would create patterns that would, you know, that would not always be emphasizing those things. Some people would call that syncopated. Do you know what an anachronism is? An anachronism is when you take something that's modern and you inject it into the past that never existed there before. Alright? Now, when we say that Bach was syncopated, uh, do we mean that he was playing rock rhythms? No. They weren't invented. Not even, never even thought of back then. Now, there is an entirely different form of music, like rock, jazz, rhythm and blues. If you want to call it country, most country is just rock today anyhow, musically. If it's got the backbeat and, and that, it's, it's, it's rock. And that's syncopated. And so, and, and, they, and, and, and rock music emphasizes beats two and four, usually by this snare drum, by hitting a rim shot. Most rim shots, or some rim shots are hit like this, and others you hit with the rim and the skin at the same time. I used to be able to hit it nine and a half times out of ten back then, but I, I don't know if I can even do that anymore. And so it really gives a nice pop, and for those of you on the front row, it's going to curl your hair or straighten it, depending on what kind of hair you got. So, um, but, you know, one, two, three, four, one. And when you emphasize that, it has a direct physiological response. Um, the, you know, the next, you know, major rhythm, and when I was studying the drum set, I, I, I trained under two of the best uh, jazz drummers in Canada, and uh, one of them said, look, you can distill all rhythms down to two. That's it. Just two. Your basic rock beat, and then, you know, a, you know just a basic, you know, just a basic jazz beat. So, uh, all rhythms can be distilled. Everything that you hear can be distilled under one of those two forms. That's it. And when we talk about the origin of the drum set a little later on, that's what the trap set was designed to do. So when we talk about syncopation, we're emphasizing the weaker parts of the beat. And, and, and rock, and especially jazz, is entirely syncopated. You do not hit the downbeat. You know, you don't hit beat one. And, you know, if you're playing in a bebop band or something like that, that would just kill it. You know, ding, 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 That's like, ah, oh, you just destroyed it. So it strives for, for anything but regularity, and it has a direct physiological response. Musical rhythms affect both our hearts and our brains. One, of, uh, one road to arousing a range of agitated feelings, tense, excited, sometimes sexual, is through pronounced and insistent rhythms, artfully used to heighten the sexual tension. Drumming may produce these powerful effects by actually driving the brain's electrical rhythms. Psychology Today. Does the opinion of the music industry support the historical and scientific evidence? Do you know who Duke Ellington is? You ever heard of Duke Ellington? All right. Well, this is from Duke Ellington. Rhythm came from Africa to America. Do you know what it does to you? Exactly what it's supposed to. No punches pulled. This is, this is a professional in the field. Have you ever heard of Little Richard? All right. My true belief about rock and roll, and there have been a lot of phrases attributed to me over the years, is this. I believe that this kind of music is demonic. 
a lot of beats and music today are taken from voodoo, from the voodoo drums. If you study music in rhythms like I have, you'll see that is true. All right, so I'm, I'm simply going to quote to you, not my opinion, but people who are in the professional music industry. All right. All right, let's see. Hip hop. Now, I didn't know that term because uh, in the 1990s, that's when I basically parted ways with, with, with music. So, uh, but rap, I understood. But to me, musically, there's not much difference between the two. Hip hop, rap is the most powerful form of music and communication. It's very what? Spiritual. You see, a lot of these musicians really want, it's really a spiritual thing to be able to do this, to be able to play. That's what it's about. Now, notice what it says. It's got so many messages in its words. Are you reading along? It's got so many messages within its rhythms, within the drum beats, as well as its words. People don't realize how powerful hip-hop is musically. Music is the most powerful form of communication. Sinead O'Connor. The Bible is more than aware of the physical effects of music. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, you remember what happened with King Saul? He rejected the word of the Lord. And because he rejected the word of the Lord, the devil came in and he tormented him. And Saul was looking for some way to relieve this kind of stress. And so David came in, and they sought David out. And you remember what instrument David played? Harp. You think this would relax King Saul? Let's see. Now you're stressed out. <laughs> I don't think that would be too relaxing, you know. <laughs> if you're stressed out like that, no, you need something soothing. You need something a little melodic. Yeah, you know, that's not going to do it. How powerful is music? Well, in Exodus 32, when we covered this, just think about it. Ten devastating plagues on the nation of Egypt. Does that happen every day? Does the Red Sea part every day? No. But yet when they were at the golden calf, the music and the dancing caused them to forget. So that was it. It's like a little kid. I mean, that's it. Once you, you see it, no, you don't see it. It's gone. Why does, why does music work the way it does? The spoken word must pass through the master brain uh, to be interpreted, translated, and screened for moral conduct. Not so with music, especially with rock music. Such pounding fury can bypass this protective screen and cause a person to make no value judgment whatsoever on what he is listening. Now, I, I've, I've listened to hundreds of thousands of hours of this. And like I said, no, I, I just dare to say nobody really listens to it because of the words. I've got the words memorized simply because if you listen to something so long, you're going to memorize it. But that's not really why I, why, why I was listening to it. When I went back years later and just, you know, just looked at some of the words, I said, man, oh man, how utterly demonic and spiritualistic. I was amazed. But at that point, I didn't even care. It didn't matter what the word said, not one bit. And that doesn't change when you just put Christian words to it. You're still experiencing on, on that level. Now, music is a language. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 8. The Apostle Paul uses an illustration here. 1 Corinthians chapter 14.
verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 to 8. It says, Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine. And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give, what does it say? A distinction in the sounds. You follow that? Except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or what is harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? If they're trying to get you ready for war, will any kind of music work? Come on now. No, no, no. Now, you guys are much more intelligent than that. You ought to know that we can do anything we want with it. Music is in the eye of the beholder. It doesn't really matter. There is no direct psychophysiological impact. No. Now, just to demonstrate this. Just to demonstrate this, I want you to pretend that I'm about six foot five, 300 pounds. I know it's hard. I want you to imagine. And now you, you've, you've upset me. And I'm not only after you, I'm after your family, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm foaming at the mouth. And I'm chasing you. And when you look at me, you're dead. All right, so I'm after you right now, and I'm huffing and puffing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna tear you to pieces. So let's, let's just, just and then let's hit the music now, just for a little bit of an effect. Just, just. <laughs> oh, forget it. Let's be friends. <laughs> now nah, you all got it. That'll never make you afraid. Um, do you put your baby to sleep by this? <laughs> My Jesus, I love thee, I know. See, the entertainment industry knows this thing. They've been doing experiments on you. They know how to make you laugh. They know how to make you cry. They know how to scare you to death. And, you, and I mean, it, and it's, what's the scariest part? I know you guys don't watch this, but what's the scariest part of any scary movie? Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, you hear the chords and, you're like, and nothing's even happened. I mean, you just, you just hear it and you're like... They're making a killing. And those who want to justify this kind of music say, no, there's no, no relationship whatsoever. And these folk are making a killing because they know how it works. Revelation 14, 12, are they that keep the commandments of God? There's a direct psychophysiological response. And it doesn't change when you put Jesus loves me to it. What about the first time you told your special one that you love them, you know. For those of you that have done that, can you go back to that scene? You know, it's probably dimly lit just like this. 
<laughs> You're just trying to muster up the courage. Man, I wonder what's going to happen, you know. So you go ahead and you give it a shot. And you say, I love you! <laughs> now, the words are the most important, right? It's, it's the actual content of what you said. That's the most important part, isn't it, ladies? What difference does it make? What's accompanied with it? It has no effect on the message whatsoever. Just a little bit of review. Are all styles and forms neutral? First and second commandments, there's a difference. The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Just a little bit of a review here. Uh, that means there's a prohibition against false gods. The second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything in heaven above, the earth beneath, the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. The second commandment says, We cannot worship the true God with false forms. Big difference between the two. So the second commandment actually puts a regulation on our creativity in the worship service. It says there are limits here. And once you transgress those limits, God says, I am no longer the one you are worshiping. And we covered that quite extensively in the first three sessions. Are all styles and forms neutral? What about Cain and Abel? Did God indicate that he accepted it? If Cain was sincere, it didn't look to me like he was very sincere. But let's imagine that he was. Would that make his worship acceptable to God? Would, it, would sincerity uh, make it acceptable by uh, traveling 80 east when I should be going 80 west to make it to California? Um, no. Sincerity is an important part, but it will not get you there. You've got to have worship Him in spirit and in truth. Both of them have to be combined. Are all styles and forms neutral? God did not accept the golden calf. Moses came down and he broke the Ten Commandments uh, on that calf. Are all styles and forms neutral? You know the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10? They happened to be drinking. And when they were drinking, they got to the point where they thought, well, all fire is the same. What difference does it make? Whether it's God's fire or this fire. This burns as hot as the other. Same chemical properties. Why not use this one? Well, God reacted to that. And He sent fire from heaven. And those two young men were devoured. That's because in, in, in the Bible, there's a difference between the holy and the unholy. And it's the sanctuary and the Sabbath that provides that meaning. And once we lose that, and the connection between the sanctuary, the Sabbath, the great controversy, and worship forms, and our worship forms come from other sources, then we lose the distinction between the holy and the unholy. Again, you've heard we're living in the postmodern world. And in the postmodern world, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. And when I die, truth dies with me. It might be all right for me to steal, but it's not all right for you. So you make up your own rules. Well, that doesn't change anything, friends. That's a good theory. It's not even a good theory. It's a theory, but it does not correspond to reality. No correspondence to reality whatsoever. You can believe it if you want, but it does not correspond to reality. If there is no absolute truth, there is no such thing 
as false worship. And if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then the idea that God would choose one people, Israel, in the Old Testament, and spiritual Israel in the New Testament, and I believe that's the Seventh-day Adventist church, that's ludicrous to a postmodern mind. That's arrogant. That's ethnocentric. That's xenophobic. That's no matter. That's what people think in the postmodern generation. But friends, if I add up ten numbers, how many right answers are there? How many different ways can you put a computer program together? I mean, there's not an unlimited variety of right ways to do things. And God says, there is a way. And another scripture says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So, it, the devil is dividing us among cultural lines. He's dividing us among cultural lines. And instead of us studying the Bible to come to grips with the pillars of our faith and use that as the materials in order to build a theology of worship, each and every one of us are digging into our own culture and saying, that's the way we do it. All of us are guilty of that. And I think this approach would free us up. And in my culture... I would say as a Greek person, wait a minute, there's some things that are not going to fly here in the worship service. And some things that may be perfectly in harmony with it. So what about culture? What did God think of grounding worship the worship service on Egyptian culture, culture at the Golden Calf? He wasn't too impressed. What did God think of grounding worship, uh, the theology of worship on Moabite culture in Numbers chapter 25? He wasn't very impressed there either. What about Babylonian culture in Daniel chapter 3? You're familiar with that chapter. It says, at the sound of the music. Now, people concentrate on all these kind of instruments that were there. But that really, to me, isn't the focus. It says there were all different kinds of music. It was an international setting. What kind of music do they use when they want to raise money in order to um, uh, provide aid for you know, uh, d uh, uh, people that are not as fortunate as we are? What kind of music do they use? They use, all, they use different forms of rock music. I mean, live aid, band aid, whatever you want to call it. That's what they do. And, they'll and the melodies and harmonies will be sprinkled with what you find from every culture. Like I'm Greek, and somebody gave me a Yanni CD. All right, now when I listen to Yanni, uh, I'm familiar with all of those Greek melodies, except now they're being accompanied by the, you know, by the trap set here. And that's what is happening. What about the Samaritan woman? You know, she said, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And Jesus said, you know not what you worship. Salvation is of the Jews. Some people say, well, didn't Martin Luther use bar and dance tunes to proclaim the gospel? Well, the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians says a difference in style between sacred and secular music hardly existed in Luther's day. So you punch on the sacred station and the secular station, and you're like, wow, there's, there's not a difference here. Another, uh, another musicologist said, um, and a professor said, the secular music of our day and the secular music of Luther's day is as different as night is from day. Of the 37 chorales 
Only one tune came directly from a secular folk song. Even that one tune borrowed from a folk song which appeared in Luther's Hymnal of 1535 was later replaced by another melody in the 1539 songbook. Historians believe that Luther discarded it because people associated it with its previous secular text. The other thing that Luther would do is that he would uh, compose it in four-part harmony. How many rock groups sing in four-part harmony? Queen? Uh, Genesis? It's all the British bands. Yes? You know. But that was like in the 70s when you actually had to know something about music. No more. Most rock music is not in... Uh, it's not in four-part harmony. And probably from the, some of the rock musicians I've met, it's probably because some of them are not capable of doing it. Now, let's talk about the drum set. Now, when you mention this subject, whoo, drums and percussion are inseparable in the minds of most people, which leads to great confusion. But this separation is a distinction that every drummer and percussionist knows and understands. A good drummer does not necessarily make a good percussionist, and especially vice versa. Because percussionists usually don't have to use their feet, and they're standing up, and they do great things, you know, with a snare drum, you know. Um, drummers, you got to sit down like I did and all, everything's engaged. Since the Bible mentions tabrets, timbrels, and all types of symbols like in Psalm 150, why not use then the drum set? Okay, so we're going to try to give an answer to this, this question, especially if you read Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. It talks about symbols, it talks about everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. So then we go ahead and we run and we jump with that. Oh, hermeneutics and biblical principles of interpretation? No, we don't need to worry about that. It just says it, so let's use it. Well, is David contradicting himself? Because the same David who wrote that got the blueprints from God about the heavenly sanctuary and about the musical uh, instruments that were to be played within that sanctuary. Now, there were different times and places in which other forms of music could be played. But we're talking about Sabbath worship, Sabbath in, Sabbath out. And we're making a distinction between that and some of the other social functions and even perhaps some of the major festivals, okay? So, but David is not contradicting himself. But yet people want to use that and inject it into the Sabbath worship service and say, hey, but the same David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there was only four instruments that were allowed in the temple service, the trumpets, the cymbals, and you say, aha, Symbols. We'll get to that in a minute. The lyre and the harp, stringed instruments. And those are the texts. We covered those. By the way, and I apologize for this, most of this is in my book, Drums, Rock, and Worship, amazingfacts.org. You can get it there. It's been out for about five years now. Uh, I, I thought I would have copies with me, but I do not. So, this restriction on instruments was in the temple service was meant to be binding. 300 years after David, Hezekiah had a marvelous reformation. Anybody here from the first two seminars? Let's see how well I did. Where did Hezekiah begin? Sanctuary, yes. <laughs> That's where he began first. 
He told the priests, get all this stuff out of the holy place, clean it up, get it ready. That's where he began. The next corresponding effect was in worship forms. 2 Chronicles 29 verse 25. And it mentions the same four instruments that we talked about in the previous screen up there. And it says that this was commanded by Gad and Nathan and another prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. This was a divine arrangement, which meant some were included and some were excluded. I can't get into the whys right now. We already covered that previously in the first three sessions. But it was based on the relationship between theology and worship forms that were integrated in the sanctuary. 300 years after Hezekiah, when Nehemiah had built the wall, again, they went back to the same instruments. Now, when God spoke, He spoke in a particular time and place. He included some instruments, and He restricted the use of others. Again, melody and harmony are primary with these instruments. And now some of you are thinking, okay, so now we've got to bring back harps and lyres? Is that what you're saying? No. Uh, what we ought to do is extract the principle that is there. All right? We ought to extract the principle. And so there are many other instruments that have a great capability when it comes to melody and harmony. Use them. How were the symbols used in the temple services? The symbols were not used by the precantor. This is a doctoral dissertation. The symbols were not used by the precantor to conduct the singing by beating out the rhythm of the song or a stanza in the song, but rather to announce the beginning of a song or a stanza in the song. Since they were used to introduce the song, they were wielded by the head of choir on ordinary occasions or by the three heads of the guilds on extraordinary occasions. Since the trumpets and the cymbals were played together to announce the beginning of the song, the players of both are called the sounder in 1 Chronicles 16.42. That's uh, John Kleining's dissertation. All right. Now, I spent a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money, but I didn't spend it to do this. I could teach you how to do that in two seconds. Now, that's obviously not the way a rock drummer plays it, you know, or a jazz drummer. You drive it. So, just because it says simples, don't be too quick to jump on the bandwagon, and it's an anachronism. That's when you inject the meaning of something that, ex that was way into the future and you plug it in into the past and you say, oh, that's what they did. Just because the same word is used. You follow me? Oh, bringing the ark to Jerusalem. You remember that story? It was a wonderful occasion. I mean, David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. You find this in 1 Chronicles 13. But they brought it on a new cart. Now, where did they get that idea from? You find that in the first five books of the Bible? They got it from the Philistines, friends. They got it from the Philistines. You know, when we're so busy watching the Philistines and saying, man, how do they grow their churches? Why don't we do it like them? This is what begins to happen. So they put it on a new cart. Oh, timbrels were used. Percussive instruments. And... The oxen got to a place, the Bible says, where the ground was not as level as it should have been. And the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah thought he would help God out and reach out and touch the ark 
the sacred ark of God, which no one was able to touch. And that was it. That was it. But this judgment had its effect on King David. He did some Bible study. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 2, 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 2, notice what it says. 1 Chronicles, it says, Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And they weren't supposed to put it on the ark. They were supposed to carry it like this. Verses 11 to 13. Now, thinking of the experience in 1 Chronicles 13, could you say that the people were, were joyous? Yes. Could you say that they were sincere? Yes, they were. But their sincerity did not atone for a direct breach in the Word of God. Verse 11 in chapter 15, it says, David called Zadok and Abiathar and all the rest of the priests. And in the middle of verse 12, well, it's a, and he said to them in verse 12, You are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. Verse 13, For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not. After the due order. So although they were sincere, although they were genuine, they did not seek him after the, new, after the due order, and Uzzah perished. There's very, something very interesting in 1 Chronicles 15 as well. When they did it again the second time, you will find, if you read this scripture, there's no timbrels. You will find, if you read verse 28 of 1 Chronicles chapter, uh, chapter 15, there were only the instruments of David that were used this time. The timbrels were left behind. I think it's about time we leave behind the timbrels. If they were that important, they'd be there in Revelation 4 and 5, in that worship service. Now, John didn't have amnesia, and he didn't forget about all the other ways that you could use musical instruments. No. He received that pattern from the pattern that was given him through the, through the, uh, through the uh, coordination of the earthly and heavenly sanctuaries. And we ought to follow that. Is there a distinction between the drum set and percussion? Most definitely. They come from two different families. They differ in the way they are played. Every drummer and percussionist knows that. Even when the drum set is used to accompany an orchestra, the music has been transformed to rock. This is a testimony from a professional drummer. I'm sure we're all familiar with the trap set through its use in jazz and rock music, even though the traps, that's this, are the new kids on the block. The trap drums, that's an important thing. You know, this, this has not been around for very long. Now, if I take this off and hold it in front of me here, well, we've had that around for a long, long time. But this construction here is new and unique. It says the traps are not only unique in their construction, but also in how they are played. Each trap drummer is required to be virtually a one-man band of percussive sounds. And this demands of him being able to split his attention evenly between both feet and hands, as well as the music of which he is a part. This alone is a skill in itself not found among most percussionists and usually takes years of training to develop. You're not going to play this overnight. You've got the coordination of four limbs going. I remember the first time, I was like, man, I, 
Okay, now I've got to put my foot in there too? Man. So, the drum set is unique, and it's solely designed to play rock or jazz. That's it. Could you imagine how ridiculous this would sound? If I went to the, um, if I went to the local music store, where they sell all this stuff, and I said, you know, I would like to buy a drum set. Oh, okay, what kind of music do you play? Well, I play, uh, I, I, I will accompany the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah. the man will immediately know that I've lost my mind. He will immediately know that I'm not from the right planet when it comes to this. Nobody does that. Now, can it be done? Let's demonstrate. I didn't quite play it like a percussionist, but yes. Now, if you were not watching what I did, could you conclude on the basis of what you heard that I was playing a trap set? Do you understand the question? You saw me do this. Nobody does this on that. Absolutely no one. That's why I'm asking those guys out there that can't see what I'm doing. You cannot conclude on the basis of what you heard alone that I was playing a trap set. You cannot make that conclusion because any percussionist could have done that. This was solely designed to play rock and jazz. You can feed a pig all the veggie links you want. It's still a pig. Okay? There is a difference between the drum set and percussion. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with a drum or a cymbal. Nothing wrong if the music is primarily composed of melody and harmony. If that's what's driving the music, you can add a little accompaniment. And that's what you find in most symphonies and orchestras. According to Mickey Hart, the origin and development of the trap set rivals that of the Model T, the first production car. The point is that it's a unique instrument not to be confused with other drums. Now, a little bit of history here. Now, I'm Greek, and I got some history. Has anybody ever heard the bouzouki play? Ah, the one Greek gentleman in the audience. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, when, you, when you're Greek and you hear the bouzouki play, you are impelled by a force to go on the dance floor. Okay? You're just... <laughs> and you go and you do that. Now, I've never heard the bouzouki played in any other way than that. And it's hard for me to conceive of it, really. Uh, and so, I'm Greek. That's the way my fathers worship. And by golly, we're going to bring that bouzouki in here. Because that's the way we do it in Greece. No. Now, there's some other things that, that will work just fine. So, I'm not talking about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Now, again, these are quotes from professionals in the field that don't necessarily have an axe to grind religiously. It says, when the slave ships began plying the waters between the New World and West Africa, everyone thought that they carried just strong, expendable bodies, but they were also carrying the counterplayer culture, maybe even the mother goddess culture, preserved in the form of drum rhythms that could call down the Orisha from their time to ours. Who are the Orisha? 
the Orisha are ancestor spirits, the worship of the dead, basically. That's in Mickey Hart's book, Drumming at the Edge of Magic, A Journey into the Spirit of Percussion. That's also in my book as well. In the Caribbean and South America, slaves were allowed to keep their drums and thus preserve their vital connection with the Orisha. Though the sudden mingling of so many different tribes produced new variations like Cantonblé, Santeria, and Voodoo. But in North America, the slaves were not allowed to keep their drums, and they lost the means by which to keep the rhythms of their spirit world alive. And out of this severing came jazz, the blues, the backbeat, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, some of the most powerful rhythms on the planet. Those rhythms are directly connected to the Orisha. At this point, it appears as if the spirit side does not have anything to do with jazz, blues, and rock because, hey, there's a severing. However, as African-American drummer uh, Greg Wilson notes, the no-drumming laws were powerless to stop the spirit. The only place in the West where it was decreed that Africans could not play hand drums was the one place where they came up with foot drums. Tap dancing, that is. It's dancing and drumming all in one, the way playing trap drums is being a traditional drum ensemble all by yourself. What does that mean to today's people? It means that into the feet is where the spirit, the African vocabulary of spirit calling went to. Spirit, Orisha, keep that in mind. Ask your elders on this side of the Atlantic, the one we're on, the old time jazz drummers, where they got their rhythms. And the answer will be, as from any other African musician, they watched the people carrying the spirit, the dancers, and played what they saw coming at them. External circumstances can bust up any drum, but no one can break up the spirit that makes you dance. The drummer's path, moving the spirit with ritual and traditional drumming. So, where did it all begin? It was directly through the revelation of the spirit, which was used to call down the Orisha. And when they couldn't do that anymore, the spirit would still come upon the people, the dancers. And when the dancers danced, the drummers watched. And they simply transferred what was on the feet... To that right over there. Wilson asks, why have a drum set? Development of such a polyrhythmic instrument is not the European way. Polyrhythmic, many rhythms. Traditional Euro drumming is identical. 20 people playing the, sum, the same per rupa pum pum. Or in another scenario, just but one badran or tabor player. I mean, this is, this is Euro drumming. And why have a drum set if you're going to do this? You don't need this for that. That's the point the man's trying to make. But this kind of, these kind of rhythms are polyrhythmic. That means many different things going on at the same time. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't interpret this as primitive. We had an African-American, no, not an African, an African drummer come to York University while I was studying jazz performance. And in Africa, drums are used for many uh, occasions, not just the Orisha. But... His, his knowledge of rhythms were so complex that none of us could follow them. He'd say, okay, when I do this, then you do this. And when I switch to this, then you dance like this. Oh, man, we can't follow that, man. <laughs> no, way too complex. Way too complex. African drums play in parts that combine to make a melody just like the trap drums are played. You got... Or 
you know. According to Wilson, it was the spirit working through African-American drummers like Baby Dodds that set the standard for drumming in the United States. As the Industrial Revolution took hold, a new soundscape was born, the auditory chaos of industrial urban noise. And it was out of this soundscape that the backbeat emerged, its first manifestations appearing in those New Orleans brass bands, African rhythms and African sensibility channeled through the unfamiliar instruments of the American marching band, and in the syncopated ragtime of Scott Joplin, the front line of these bands consisted of trumpet, clarinet, and trombone, but sitting in the back, propelling this new beat was an invention that to my mind rivals those of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison. I speak, of course, of the drum set. Mickey Hart is the longtime drummer for the group The Grateful Dead. Okay? So he's a, he's a professional, he's a writer, he's a researcher. So this is what he's saying. Now, again, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, there, there is a whole history of, of the Negro spirituals, which are wonderful uh, forms of music. Unfortunately, as I was just talking with, with, with one of the brethren, uh, they've been corrupted with blues, rhythm and blues, and jazz. And in my mind, they are not the same. It's not the same. And if you, if you want to hear uh, some real excellent uh, African-American Negro spirituals, I recommend that you would listen to the Aeolians from, Oakland, uh, from uh, Oakwood, uh, Oakwood College. University. University, I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, once we settle on the principles of the melody and harmony, uh, you know, we can, uh, we can then have adaptation from all the cultural backgrounds. And every one of us then can contribute something that makes us who we are, who we are because of how God made us. But when we stick our feet in the ground and say, hey, I'm going to do this, I don't care what anybody says, then we veer away. And we may not be worshiping God at all. According to Mickey Hart, the backbeat, which is your basic rock rhythm, grew out of African rhythms and African sensibility. Thus, there's not only a family tie between rock, jazz, and African rhythms, but there's a spiritual unity that pervades all three rhythms as well. Mickey Hart says again, the specifics of the West African rhythmic tradition were lost, except for in the secret societies that still followed voodoo. All that remained was an urge that once freed, satisfied itself by creating something totally new, a polyrhythmic instrument that one person could play handily. He's referring to how the drum set originated uh, and what it's really designed to play. Again, I shared this statement earlier. You can, sh you can hear soul and Latin music almost anywhere in Africa. You can hear African and West Indian music on the radio at various times in the large cities in the United States. You can sit in a bar in Ghana, Togo, or the Ivory Coast and hear music from Zaire and Congo, from Nigeria, from South Africa, from Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Colombia, and the United States. Great drummers, aficionados, and scholars. Three groups of people can trace the rhythms of Latin dance halls of New York to Cuban and Brazilian cults and then to West Africa. So these things have already been documented. I'm just sharing with you uh, what others are saying. This is an incredible testimony of, of a young man that came from Africa to the United States. He said, the most important rhythms in Yoruba land are those that communicate with who? And who are the Orisha again? The ancestor spirits. It's the worship of the dead. And the Bible says the dead know not anything. So, those are the most important rhythms, the ones that communicate with the Orisha. 
He says, when I got to college and first turned on the radio and heard, when I love my baby, every time it rains, I think of you and I feel blue. I was so stunned. What was the man stunned about? I remember thinking, hey, that's African music. But the man had never been here before. It sounds like what's at home. And the same thing happened when I heard gospel music. Unfortunately, much gospel music is nothing more than rhythm and blues. You know, it's, 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 it's sad to say. But it's, it's nothing, if you listen to some gospel music and you go to the nightclub where you hear rhythm and blues, there's no difference. Very little difference. And we ought to be different. So I joined the campus jazz combo. So the man, never been here before, he says, deja vu. That's like what's at home. So what I'm presenting to you, I didn't make up. Didn't come from my church. Didn't come from even religious folk. These are all drummers, scholars that have traced these things and were not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Thus, the same rhythms that were used to communicate with the Orisha can now be found in jazz, blues, and 50s music, which is the beginning of rock music. And so the spirit lives on and is a vital part of rock music today and of the trap set in particular. This is clear in Mickey Hart's testimony. Now, notice the spiritual side of this. He says, it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment when I awoke to the fact that my tradition, rock and roll, did have a spirit side that there was a branch of the family that had maintained the ancient connection between the drum and the gods. I suppose it was like meeting some long-lost cousins and realizing with a start that these are your relatives, that you are rhythmically related. And in drumming, that's the same as blood. That's why I didn't realize, I mean, I only, this quote I found out years later, that's why I moved from rock to blues, to jazz. Much more complex rhythmically the more you move up. So, um, but he's saying we're all rhythmically related. Now back in those countries, they, no punches pulled about the spiritual side of it. But when rock got here, we lost that connection. But what Mickey Hart is saying is that that connection has always been there. It's always been there. And so what spirit are we responding to? You know, what is it that we're responding to? Uh, Brother Skeet talked about last night. Some people go to church on Sabbath. And then they go to on Sunday to get the Spirit. All you've been done is... All that's happened to you is that you've been manipulated emotionally. That's all that's happened to you. Your heart rate has increased a little bit. And you've interpreted that as the Holy Spirit. That's all that's happened to you. And unfortunately, many people who do that... It's like a drug fix. Oh, I got to go to get my fix. Oh, man, I got it. And we're the same heathen as we were. Then we walked into the church. No transformation of heart and of mind whatsoever. We just gone there to get the fix. That's all that's happened. So may the Lord bless. May the Lord continue as you and I make decisions for him. And, you know, GYC is a time to make decisions. We've talked about the theological grounding. In this session, we've grounded it to Revelation 14. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. We've grounded it there. 
What you and I need to do is to make an inventory of our musical library. Because if we really love Jesus, if we really want to be ready for His return, we want to listen to the kind of music that will glorify Him. We want to join in the anthems that will be up there when all the people will be surrounding the throne and praising God. And I'm not talking about a lifeless form of music, okay? I'm not talking about drudgery. We need life. There's no question about it. We need to train accompanists who know how to accompany people, who know how to accompany a congregation. But it's a lost art. I'm going to make a plug and a challenge to some of our institutions. Because we're so busy trying to be like Juilliard and all these other schools to turn out all these professionals, and we don't know how to accompany a congregation in learning how to sing and teaching them how to sing. So what really is our purpose then? And let me submit to you that you cannot compete with Juilliard. You're not going to be able to do that. And so we really need to refocus and do what we can to make our worship meaningful. And if we have an experience with Jesus, we'll want to come and sing. Now, I know at first to me it was, it was so foreign, yeah. But when the Lord began to change my heart, I tell you what, if the music has beauty, like Ellen White says, beauty and power and pathos, it will not fail to move you. Amen? Amen? So let's every one of us check our musical inventory, check our philosophy, and have the courage to reorder our homes, our churches, and our schools along with this philosophy so that we can really praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for having been with us. May you continue to lead and guide us. I know some of the things that have been said are challenging. I know how I felt when I studied and heard them. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with every struggling soul to help them all to understand that you have so much more that you would like to give to them. Oh, Lord God, bless everyone who is going to make a decision by faith to separate themselves from this form of music. Lord, give them wisdom in your word. Give them abilities that they've never had before. Give them a joy and a peace they've never had before. And we thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.